Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Hello, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Always a highlight of my week. How is everyone? Pretty good. Pretty good. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Why not? Fine. Go with that, Max. Sure. I'll take it. Max, what about your guest for this week? Uh, I got a good one this week, you guys. A little, uh, little off the beaten path for us. Adam McKay, film director. I'm just going to list some movies here that he's responsible for. Anchorman. Step Brothers, The Big Short, Vice. He's also uh, behind Succession. Many people who listen to this podcast have got to love Succession. Uh, but he came on the show and we started talking about uh, his podcast that he did during quarantine. It's called Death at the Wing. It's about a ton of stuff, but it is primarily about young basketball players who died prematurely in the 80s and 90s and how their deaths connect to both the politics of that era, but also the politics we're living through now. It is not a connection that I would have made on my own, but I will tell you this, Adam McKay makes it very convincingly. He sold you on it? He did. He sold me on all kinds of things. This is definitely one of these interviews where I just got like charmed completely. I will admit that. But uh, we talked about some things that will also be relevant to people listening to the show, including adapting nonfiction work. He talked about the whole process of making the big short and his relationship or lack thereof with Michael Lewis. He also talked about knowing when people are writing stories that are supposed to become movies like the only reason the article exists is to become a movie uh it was great we talked to him about all, all kinds of things writing too that's good stuff hey if you've got all kinds of things in writing too put that in a newsletter with mailchimp they make it easy and they are our sponsor and we thank them thanks mailchimp that is a great newsletter title <laughs> a lot of things in writing too and now talking a lot of things and writing too. here's Max with Adam McKay. Adam McKay, welcome to the show. Thanks for doing this. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I want to start with uh, this podcast, Death at the Wing, that you just put out. So the show is about several young basketball players who died prematurely, mostly in the 80s, a few in the 90s, and what their deaths reveal and created about basically Reagan-era economics and how class and power work in America. Does that, does that feel like a fair uh, description? That is a pretty fair description. Yeah, I would say that the 80s were a dramatic shift in American history towards extreme wealth, stardom, huge amounts of media. And right smack in the middle of that was the NBA. And 
uh, it led to a lot of success for the NBA, but it also led to some tragedy. Or if it didn't lead to it, it certainly connected to those times. Right. And kind of, I always say, like in an Adam Curtis way, there it's two interesting stories to tell next to each other. The NBA and America's swing towards the right wing. I, I think it is really interesting, and the connection is far stronger than I would have thought having listened to the show. Uh, I am curious, like, you're a busy person. You, I assume, can make almost anything you want to make right now. I know these podcasts take a lot of time to create. Like, why, um, I guess my question is, why did you do this? So it was two things, because I just have always had the nagging question like why so many guys in that short amount of time you can't find an equivalent in any other sport and really even when you go to other mediums i mean you could find it a little bit in hollywood 60s into the 70s with like a a new kind of fame and people with pills and alcohol and there's a bunch of tragedies in hollywood in the 60s into the 70s But for just years, I'd always wondered why, you know, Len Bias, Benji Wilson, Terry Furlow, Roy Tarpley, Hank Gathers, Reggie. I mean, it's an incredibly long list of names. And the great thing about podcasts, you can actually enter them without knowing the answer. Whereas with a TV series, if I set this up as a docuseries, I would have to know the answer ahead of time. And so I saw this as a great opportunity to really go answer a question uh, as opposed to knowing the answer beforehand. And the other part that I will answer for you as far as your your question goes is the quarantine. That's how I had time to do it. So I'm stuck in my house and I've always had this question about this story. And we have a new company, Hyperobject Industries. We have a podcast division. Uh, we had an incredible team, and I had the time. Uh, and it's just been one of the more interesting, fruitful, fascinating experiences I've ever had. That makes some sense to me because I mean, I, I think there's there's two things that you sort of need for a podcast to work, and one of them is that the person who's voice you're hearing needs to genuinely give a shit. I I think it's a pretty unforgiving medium to bullshit. And so if you don't actually care, people can hear that and they'll turn it off. And then I think people need to hear you trying to figure something out. Like there needs to be, that's part of what the journey or the process of it is, is like learning something in real time. But it's interesting that that was such an exciting part of it. Was there any piece of it that was like a little uncomfortable to be thinking out loud in that way when you're so used to like, here I have created the thing and I'm presenting it to you in its entirety. There definitely were a couple moments that were really kind of emotional. Uh, The big one was talking to Billy Moore, the gentleman who pulled the trigger and killed Benji Wilson. Uh, A lot of different feelings going on while I was talking to him. Uh, it's also a story that takes a turn I did not expect as far as what Billy's doing with his life now and the redemption and reconciliation that he's really found. But at the same time, you're still talking to a guy who who killed a young man on a street corner. Um, So that was very complicated and emotional. 
the other one that was really hard was the story of Ricky Berry, really talented, small forward, shoot the lights out, super athletic. They used to call him Reggie Miller with a handle. Um, and he killed himself over an off season. And this is back in the early 90s. We just had no framework for that kind of mental health distress. People didn't know how to talk about it. So in the course of that episode, I talked to Jerry West, who the legendary NBA player who's very upfront about his struggles with mental health issues. And then you get into a bunch of other NBA players who are now being very upfront about it. And that, that one actually had a happy ending in the sense that the NBA is really leading the field when it comes to mental health awareness and speaking openly about it. But, you know, as someone who's had some dealings with my own mental health issues, it's just very emotional to hear to hear these people struggle, to hear the specificity of their pain. Um, so some of these episodes have really been hard. And the Len Bias one, it's just so tragic how his death was used yeah. to incarcerate so many young African-American men. So these, yeah, these are powerful subjects. But when you say it was hard, what do you mean? Uh, uh, here's what it is. It's been, I'm 53 years old. It's been really hard, really traumatic to watch for 25 years our country come undone in a frightening, upsetting, scary way. It's been really upsetting to watch over 500,000 people be killed by guns since 9-11. Over 500,000 people die from opioids. A million people killed in Iraq. Neo-Nazism go back into the mainstream. Income inequality just become absolutely catastrophic to the point where most people in America can't afford one medical bill without going into bankruptcy or crisis and to watch literally the destruction of our livable atmosphere like we are killing the livable atmosphere in a way that's not for our grandkids it's for like two three years from now and to watch the level of insanity from this this kind of Ayn Randian narrative that was mm. you know foisted on our country and to see a large majority of our country just completely forget what community means or problem solving or clear empirical thought as we go down this twisted, demented sort of right wing tunnel, it's been awful. I mean, it's been really emotional and upsetting in a very personal way. So to have to kind of walk through this a little bit and then to hear the toll that it's taken on individuals and actually interview them to actually mm -hmm. talk to Billy Moore, to hear what the gun epidemic has done, to hear what neglected mental health funding in the 80s and in the 90s meant for people to hear this is a lot of emotion. Um, there are plenty of times we laugh. I love basketball. It's fun as hell. But I guess really what I'm saying is I've just never gotten this choked up this many times on a project. I, I've certainly got teary eyed multiple times on Vice. There were really emotional moments on the big short. Uh, Succession, I remember, had a moment that really got me when I filmed that pilot. So there's been, even oddly, the end of Step Brothers was kind of emotional when we shot it. So I'm not saying, as crazy as it sounds, it actually kind of was. Um, but 
this one just, yeah. I And I think it relates to, I mean, you, you've got to feel this way, Max, too, or people listening to this. Even if you're a Republican or even if you believe in this right wing ideology, I mean, it's been a freaking shit show. Like (laughs) our country's traumatized, like, you know, deeply, deeply, man. I got to I got to just tell you, like, I've got a whole like list of questions, the whole like outline for this interview in my head. But you just brought up like 15 different things that now I want to ask you about any of which could take us off the rails here. But I'm just going to ask you, is that is that all right? Oh, yeah. Whatever you want to do. All right. Here's here's one question. You seem very in touch with that trauma. Like, how do you not just, like, uh, wake up in the morning and take a step out of bed and just, like, crumple and lie on the floor for the rest of the day? So I'm talking to you right now about the kind of traumatic, dark side of it, but it's a bigger picture. You know, life is dark. Life is bumpy. Life is hilarious. Life is interesting. Life is fun. So... You know, I'm I'm talking about one of the instruments that's playing, which is the unwinding, as George Packer calls it in his book. And that's one that's the the dark oboe underneath the symphony. But there's piccolos, too. You know, there's cellos, too. There's other things going on. And in a lot of ways, I, I'm very excited about a lot of things. And and as grim as that is, the the picture I just painted I'm oddly optimistic, too. How do you hold on to that optimism? Well, I think you are starting to see people realize that a lot of this is ridiculous, that the idea that we don't... I mean, you look at the polling numbers on universal health care, they're well into the 70 percentile. I think people fully get that billionaires aren't paying enough taxes, and even millionaires like myself were not paying enough taxes. So... I think you're starting to see awareness about the climate crisis. You know, the whole country of Australia burned. We actually are seeing more and more green cars hit the road. Biden has really surprised me. He's a guy who's totally owned by credit card companies and Wall Street. Well, I think he also realizes he's at the end of his life and he wants to actually do some positive things. And um, I don't think a lot of this crazy, almost death cult misinformation that you're seeing on the extreme right wing can hold. Uh, even the Q, you know, movement has kind of faded a little bit. Um, does it mean bad things won't happen? Uh, no, they certainly will. We're seeing more shootings pop up. I even think when it comes to climate change, there's a, you know, a, a few positives happening. And uh, the carbon capture technology is starting to catch around the world. So overall, I'm pretty positive. You've been moving more and more into mass audience work with a very strong political angle. And a lot's been made of that move. But since you brought up climate change a couple of times, a thing that I've talked about to people on the show before is how challenging climate is to write about entertainingly. And um, I, I don't think you've tackled it as a topic, but have you thought about that at all? Like how how you can make a mass market product that tackles that issue? Yeah, I mean, I've definitely thought about it a lot. I mean, the movie I'm here editing right now, it's called Don't Look Up, is sort of about that. Uh, we have a couple other projects going as well. I mean, there's a bunch of different answers. I, I, I don't have an answer for that question, but I have a lot of questions to that question. I mean, do you think that climate poses some distinct challenge like narratively in some way 
from some of the other issues you've tackled? I think the problem with climate is for decades and decades and maybe even thousands of years, you can actually find periods of time in the middle of the 19th century. There was a whole rash of preachers saying the world's going to end and giving specific dates. And there were these movements around these kind of end times preachers. You saw it happening about eight, nine years ago. It still pops up all the time. For for decades, we've been seeing little comics in the New Yorker where it's a guy on a street corner with the end is near sign. And then there's some joke about him that I think we're we're hardwired to to roll our eyes at the end is near the very possibility of it. We just may not be built as animals to handle it. So it's incredibly difficult because the end is like climate change, climate catastrophe will at least kill billions of people, if not all of mankind. And I just don't know, even me saying that to you right now, if I fully get that to my very bones, Mm -hmm. like I understand it on a bunch of levels, but do I really fully understand that? Is it really changing my brain chemistry in any way? I'm not sure it is. I, I, and I'm, I don't know if we can comprehend that. It might just be too big for our brains. It might just be too big for our brains, or, and in a way, too ridiculous. Uh, the idea that, oh, it's just a like, little bit more, like we haven't even doubled the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, and it's only like less than, what is it, 1% of all the gases in the atmosphere? And that's enough to wreck the entire recipe of the, we put an extra half a tablespoon of salt in the recipe and, and now we die. Like it's, it's a lot to get there. Um, Mm. and I just, yeah, I don't, I think it's too big. It's too ridiculous. It's too cartoonish and in some ways too boring. Um, but we're going to try. I mean, that's our company is called Hyperobject, which is a climate. The climate catastrophe is, according to Timothy Morton, the philosopher, is a hyperobject. So is gun violence. So is the Internet. A lot of things. So that's the intent of the company is to sort of fail, fail, succeed, fail, fail, succeed with the, the kind of projects we try. Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly. The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Calling all female runners. It's time to lace up and join Team Milk. 
Since the 2022 New York City Marathon, Team Milk has sponsored female marathon runners nationwide, providing support and shining a spotlight on their unique stories, perseverance, and drive to go the distance. Why milk? Dairy milk is an excellent nutritional ad for both marathon training and recovery. Milk contains 13 essential nutrients, including high-quality protein, making it a crucial component of a training diet. Plus, it's one of the best beverages for hydration, even better than water. The same electrolytes that are added to many of your favorite sports drinks are found naturally in milk. And in 2024, Team Milk is taking the next step to empower female runners by launching the only women's marathon in the U.S. designed for and by women. Built to be accessible, empowering, and community building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. talk about the company a little bit like how fully are you leading the place in like a practical way like maybe another way of asking this question is just like um are you a good boss (laughs) well when we started the company a lot of it seemed ambitious abstract theoretical we're going to call it hyperobject. I've been reading this eco-philosopher, Timothy Morton. We've been talking with David Wallace-Wells. You know, it was all this kind of stuff that seemed a little far away. We did a retreat. We had, you know, Naomi Klein, Ron Suskind, uh, you know, Franklin Leonard. All these interesting people came and spoke, including Timothy Morton. And it all seemed like ambitious and abstract and theoretical. And it was like six months later, everything we were imagining that was 10 years off started happening. So it very quickly got practical and became much easier to talk about. But, you know, the big trick to being a decent boss is who you hire. In fact, it's kind of the only trick. And so I I just hired great people. Everyone we have is just really, really good. Everyone is there because they want to try and do stuff that that pushes it a step or two so that that that's the reason they signed up for the company and once you have people like that you don't have to be yelling or ranting or checking time cards too much because everyone wants to be there that makes sense to me but still like i guess part of what i was just asking is just like um are there still parts that are hard or when you get to the place that you're in in your career like do you just not have to do the shit you don't want to do anymore? Um, you know, the, uh, yeah, I still love, I mean, writing is still first and foremost what I love to do, but writing always has hard elements built into it. There's just always going to be a day where you don't feel like sitting down at the desk. There's going to be times where you're like, ah, shit, I don't feel like finishing that script or I'm stuck. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm finishing up a script right now, uh, that I got a little stuck on. So this weekend, I'm just going to hold up for the whole weekend and just, I, sometimes you just kind of like throw 15 hours at a script for two straight days, you know, 15. Is that still how you do it? Like, has your, has your process changed at all? Like in terms of balancing writing with the rest of your life? 
yeah, usually it's not 15 hours at a script. If things are humming along and going really well, it can be six, seven hours, maybe eight at the most, sometimes five. But when you get stuck, I've just found through the years, sometimes you just got to outwork it and nothing works better than just I'm not going to go more than 10 feet away from my computer for 15 straight hours. And if you do that, you will crack stuff. So that's not the funnest thing. You know, I'd rather lounge around this weekend, watch an NBA game, you know, go for go to the beach with the family now that we can for the first time. But yeah, so this weekend will be a little bit hard. So there's stuff like that. So what I hear you saying about the writing is that um, you still get stuck just like you always got stuck. But now at least you know that if you like tether yourself to your computer, you'll figure it out. Yes. I mean, it's it's I'm sure there are much better writers out there who would have much better solutions. But it is kind of my solution. And through the years, the one that seems to work is just to kind of put your head down, hold the football as hard as you can, and just run at the line and <laughs> over and over and over again. And if you make enough mistakes and enough wrong turns, eventually you'll start to see a crack of light with one of the choices, and you're like, ah, here we go. But right. it's sometimes you have to make 18 mistakes to find that crack of light. But there is like some confidence that's sort of embedded in that idea, right? Like, um, you know you'll crack it if you just stay in the room. Did that change for you at some point, or have you always felt that way? I think a lot of it's about the idea. If the idea is really exciting, if the idea feels layered and fruitful and complex and interesting, you want those kind of ideas where you feel like you could write a thousand pages on it and you're going to have to limit yourself. So when you've got that idea, yes, pretty much every time if you get stuck, you can just do the thing of making 15, 20 mistakes to find the right way. However, if you've got a thin idea, I've had this happen where I get paid to do a rewrite years ago and it's like a script I necessarily wouldn't have said I was going to do. So you've got this idea, you're like, is there enough here? You kind of try and add a little bit and you're like, you have to get excited about the idea. And sometimes I've succeeded with rewrites. I've done some rewrites that really put them on track and got the movie made. And then there's been other times where I feel like I I failed the producers and the director and you're like, ah, man, I'm really sorry. I just couldn't quite get this. So, yeah, I think the idea is the key. If it's really exciting, if it makes you want to jump out of bed and go to work. I mean, you ask, how do I get out of bed living in the collapse of the United States? That's how I get out of bed. There's ideas that I'm so excited about. And is that is that basically how you decide what you're going to work on and what you're going to pursue? Just how full that idea feels to you? Yes. Yeah, that's it. And it's like, does the idea like and, and especially if I'm directing I'll always ask the question, do I need to direct this? You know, because there are certainly hundreds of directors that can do things as directors that I can't do. And is it uniquely I should do this? And is it just a gut thing when you know if you need to call your own number? I think so. Yeah, I read Succession. I read that first script from Jesse Armstrong. I was like, oh, yeah, I got to do this. 
This is exactly, this is everything I love. I, I, you know what it is? A lot of times you pick up the script and you could just see it instantly. You know exactly the style. You can hear the sound of it. That was like the big short after I read the book. I just knew exactly. And then when I jumped into it, there was already a draft from Charles Randolph and he had a lot of really good stuff in there. But I knew kind of the, the couple moves I really wanted to make. And, and that, that's the best feeling when you, you really can kind of see it, you can feel it. You're like, oh yeah. And, and those are the times where I'm like, I should do this. I'm, I'm not saying I'm right. I'm not saying I'm correct by the way, but certainly it's enough of a, a of a push, enough of an incentive that you just feel like, oh yeah, let's do this. This is going to be great. And you could put up with the long hours and you could put up with the work and the scouts and being in the van. Cause you're like, oh, I really want to see this. I want to I want to ask you about adaptations because I feel like this is the long form podcast and I have like a fiduciary duty to ask about how you adapt <laughs> nonfiction into fiction, but um, just one more question about that because you you're just stressing like I'm not always right. How do you get okay with that? How do you get okay with being like I'm going to do this one, and that might not be the right move, but I'm going to do it. Like, how do you how do you kind of manage the um, ego shame part of that? You know what I mean? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And especially in this day and age where it used to be when you would make a movie or a show or even some sketches or even a theater production back in Chicago, you'd get three reviews. You'd get, if it's a movie, yeah, you'd get, you know, 30, 40 reviews. But now it's 300 reviews, you know, 300,000 social media comments. Um, I mean, it the reaction you get to what you do has been amplified. So, I mean, I, I, it's hard to imagine, but in the 1980s, there was really like, if you made a movie, you got like two reviews, you got Siskel and Ebert would give you the thumbs up, thumbs down. And then there's Pauline kale for the New York times. And then there was the guy for the LA times and it wasn't even guaranteed. He was going to review you. And that was really it. I mean, it's hard to imagine. So, it still hurts. It still hurts when you, you really want to do your best. You really, because what, what you're really doing is you're checking your own flaws. You're checking your own margin of error. You're really trying to see the thing as its own thing. You're trying to get yourself out of the way of the process. You know, it's Leonard Cohen said, the less of me that was in my songs, the happier I was. And that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to get yourself out of it so you can see it as its own thing. So sometimes when you do a project and then you look back and you're like, ah, shit, there was, I, I let some of myself get in the way of that. It's, it sucks, but, but it's also part of it. And there's so many times where you're excited about that, you know, the story did take off the story, you know, the wind did catch the sail and it went off on its own. And that just feels so good that it far outweighs the time where you, the times where you make a mistake or let something go wrong or too long or hit the wrong tone, uh, which is going to happen. I mean, there's no way around it, but those times where it just all catches perfectly, it's just so exciting. You, you keep doing it. Is that like, you feel like you're basically like chasing that feeling kind of, <sighs> yeah, it, here's what here's how I would describe it because I, I I don't know if it's chasing the feeling for me, but it's I just remember like the third cut of the Big Short, it was already working 
and and you kind of realize like, well, that's not me. That's a bunch of people. That's like Michael Lewis. That's the real people who lived it. On and on and on. It's all the great actors. It's the, you know, it's about 220 people. But it is, it, it's kind of a magical moment. I, I've heard songwriters describe it where you write the song and, and the song almost finds you. Like Tom Waits did a whole thing about that. How the song sort of like knocks on his door and wants to come in. And it, it is an incredible thing to see to see and to experience because it's outside of you. It's bigger than you. Um, yeah. So am I chasing that feeling? I, I don't know if I'm chasing that feeling, but I would say we're chasing that feeling. Yeah, I think part of what was rattling around in my head when I asked that was um, David Grant's a writer for The New Yorker, and uh, he's come on the show a couple of times. And the last time I talked to him, he said that he really firmly believes there's like a perfect way to tell every story. And that he doesn't think he's ever going to get there, but there is some like actually empirically perfect way to do it, and that's what he's no way. trying to do every time. I couldn't disagree <laughs> any stronger with that statement. I mean, look at remakes. You know, look at remakes of movies where they're totally different. Look at covers of songs where it's totally different. Look at, I mean, there's you know, Rashomon. You know, it's. Uh, it, there's a thousand different ways to tell stories. And by the way, sometimes the story will seem like you told it perfectly for the time. And then six years later, you realize you didn't tell it perfectly at all. And everything has changed. And, you know, there's too many. I don't think there is a perfect way, but there is. I do think there's degrees to which you can get out of your own way better than other mm-hmm. times. And and, and like hope and like let like let the thing happen rather than force it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the movie, a movie I really had a hard time with because it was incredibly difficult subject matter. And I certainly brought a history to it was vice because it kind of wanted to be its own thing. It wasn't the movie. I was like, I was setting out to make something that had some stylistic choices in it and did some certain things. And the movie wanted to go in this other direction And I think I sort of fought it too much. And there were times where I didn't fight it. And you can see when you see the movie, there's stretches that work really well. And then there's other times I fought it a little bit and tried to make it something else. And it was such a dark, like timeless, all-American, large story. And I'm not sure I totally listened to it enough. And I, I do have a feeling like I got in the way of that one a little bit. I mean, they have director's cuts of movies, and I've always kicked around the idea of like, maybe that's one I someday do a director's cut of, because I, I feel like I got unfinished business with that one. Well, but, I was, um, was going to I was gonna ask you whether those things sort of like uh, linger with you and chew on them, but I guess the answer is yes. Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. I mean, and, you know, Anchorman 2 which was another hard one because there's nothing harder than doing a sequel and especially a comedy sequel. I always felt like that movie was eight minutes too long, that there was a chunk in there I should have taken out. You've got like the chunk in your head. You know what it is? Oh, exactly. Oh, I know exactly what to lift out. And there's a couple other ones through the years where ah, I wish I had done that. But there's not too many Um, because I also I'm not being hard on myself because we're all going to make mistakes like nothing's going to be perfect so but it's just those times where you don't quite see it clearly and you're like oh shit man are you the same way in your personal life like do you like um do you like uh go back and try and like right wrongs in relationships or things you feel like you fucked up are you able to move on from those yes 
that would bother. I, I would want to make amends. In fact, yeah. you just said that, and I thought of like two or three people, <laughs> and I've done it through the years. I've actually had people do it to me, where they call me and they're like, "I was shitty." I want to send you a note and they apologize and I can actually feel the like slight little annoyance at the person or anger that I was maybe carrying like disappear because the person gave mm -hmm. a real apology. So I've definitely done that with people. I've done that with old friends where I was like, man, I just realized that was shitty when I did that back in 1991. I apologize. And of course they all say the same thing. Ah, oh, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. But I'm like, ah, just wanted to say it. Yeah. I, I, I think that's fairly healthy, though, right? I mean, that doesn't seem too crazy. I think so. I mean, I think it's healthy. I think it's a healthy way to think about your your work too. Um, I just think there's like a balance with it because if you think about it too much, you can't, you know, do anything else. Well, I had a I had a heart attack on Vice, so I think it made everything on that movie much more epic, much larger, much more difficult, and in the process of editing, it was crazy. So I never in my life had a post editorial experience like that and also the studio was going through a giant shift uh annapurna there was just a lot of tumult and chaos in the air so that that was an experience like i've never had i also can laugh about it because there are so many crazy stories from filmmaking of directors who get their asses kicked in edit who get their asses kicked on set who get their asses kicked in trying to get financing i mean the stories are endless and that was really kind of for me the first time I really got my ass kicked in a, in a real way. And and I think I'm better for it. And I definitely can laugh at most of it. But there is a little part of me. It's like maybe someday I do a director's cut on that. <laughs> did that experience, that heart attack, did that change the kind of projects you want to do, the kind of work you want to do? No, no, no. What it changed, because I was already... You know, the world had already gotten quite insane to the point where, I mean, don't get me wrong, I'd, I'd like to just make movies like Step Brothers for the rest of my life. I mean, it's, there's nothing more fun in the world than every day showing up on set and laughing with incredibly cool actors and crew members and improvising all day with Mary Steenburgen and John C. Riley and Farrell and Richard Jenkins and Adam Scott and Catherine Hahn and on and on and on. I mean, it's 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 pure fun. Um, but clearly at a certain point, it's just to make movies like that almost would be ridiculous given what's going on. So um, that change had already happened. The big change that the heart attack did was, uh, number one, I couldn't stop smiling for two days afterwards. I was in such a good mood because I wasn't dead and couldn't stop laughing and smiling. And then number two, I stopped drinking uh, shortly thereafter, about three months after that, I stopped drinking and I still cheat like a moron occasionally and have a cigarette, but basically stopped smoking. And then I lost 25 pounds. And so I did the whole health lifestyle change thing. That's, that's really what came from it. The thing we should talk about before I let you go is adapting nonfiction, uh, for the screen. And you've done it a bunch of times, but I feel like the big short is probably the best one to focus on. Like, help me understand how you approach an adaptation like that. Like, how close are you working with Michael Lewis? What are you determined to keep from the story? Where where do you know you're going to freelance? Like, how do you interact with the journalism? 
So that one, that one really just came to me in one moment. And it was, I was reading the book and Michael Lewis said, after describing, I think it was how a CDO works for like three straight pages. He said, if you've kept up with this to this point in the book, you deserve a gold star. And I, and I just love that. Like for one moment, Michael Lewis was talking to me and he was also acknowledging that it's difficult. And he also pointed out that it's not difficult by accident, that that's part of how the scam works. And I love the feeling of getting something that I'm not really supposed to get. I love that the author's acknowledging that it's hard. And that one moment is what unlocked the whole movie for me. I just thought, oh, I'm going to talk to the audience and I'm going to acknowledge this. And how closely are you working with Michael Lewis in that project? Like how, how much input are you getting from him? Not a whole lot. Uh, Lewis would always joke with me like, I won't bother you. Just keep doing what you're doing. And I would talk, I'd probably talk to him like two or three times, but he just kept saying, it's yours now. Just go adopt it. I mean, he, mm-hmm. in fairness to him, he did a lot of work because he wrote the book. Um, so we had a financial consultant. We had a, a, a financial journalist, Adam Davidson, came on, and he was able to take me to different economists, bond traders. I got to meet the real people from the book through Michael. So I had a lot of support. I, another important thing for me was understanding the world so that I could talk about it too. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to just be the guy who took the information and put it together in the movie. I really wanted to have a, you know, down to my toes understanding of what happened with this collapse and the way our current economy is working. So through Adam Davidson, a lot of his connections through Michael Lewis, through the real people in the book, by the time the movie came out, I felt like I think I really understand what's happening here. I'm not saying I'm an expert. I'm not saying I could teach a right. class on it, but I, I definitely got the lay of the land by the time the movie came out. Hey, it's Max. Um, I'm just going to pause things quickly because right here at this juncture in the interview, we had a slight technical difficulty. Adam's recorder crapped out. And so uh, from here on out, what you're going to hear is Adam on Zoom. It's just going to change a little bit, but it's fine. You can totally hear everything. And, uh, you know, just stick with it because he says all kinds of good stuff. Okay, back to the interview. That part of the business, the sort of like IP in magazine articles or podcasts, playing the Hollywood lottery with that work has become a bigger and bigger part of magazine journalism, of book writing, of podcasting. And I wonder if you, as someone who's on the other side of that equation, have any advice for people who might be listening who are trying to navigate that world or think about how to position their work for it or what happens if you do get some interest, like what are you looking for from the journalist in that case or the person who's, who's providing that AP? I think it's the same thing I'm looking for in any spec scripts or scripts that are floating around town. The best ones are the ones that are micro macro where it's a seemingly small story. Hustlers is a great example. I remember when that story came to us and I was like, oh my God, this is definitely a movie. It's ostensibly about some dancers that some strippers that uh, drugged some Wall Street types and ran up their credit cards. But Jessica Pressler, the journalist, 
very, very smart, great writer, gets the micro macro. She knew that it was about a lot more than that. And it was a cultural moment and it was about power dynamics and sexuality. And it was about our economy. And suddenly you have a story that could have just been about ripping off some people's credit cards and it, it feels like it resonates so much more. So I love the micro macro. I would also say the big thing is just be aware of the well you know, the well-traveled path. You know, there's always a, a, a sort of horde of journalists that are all writing through the same kind of frame. It's kind of the accepted point of view of the news day of what we're going to talk about. And, you know, I think we just know like any other endeavor, same thing with Hollywood, same thing with novelists, same thing with medicine, anything. The, the journalists that stray from that regular path tend to come up with the stories that really tell the story of it. The famous example is the columnist, was it, I can't remember his name, uh, who interviewed the gravedigger mm-hmm. on the day that JFK's funeral and in through the gravedigger, we actually ended up getting the most interesting perspective on the whole death of that president. So yeah, those would be my two things. Go off the professional path. And usually you'll get the biggest stories there. And then the micro macro is always really enjoyable as well. And then otherwise ignore everything I've just said and just do great journalism and, <laughs> and screw Hollywood. We'll, we'll find you. <laughs> Believe me, we'll find you once you, you knock it out of the park. Well, I like I like that part of the advice is just like be Jimmy Breslin, but the oh Jimmy Breslin, that's who it was. Thank you. The um, I think that's part of what I was asking is like people who are writing with the intent of getting stuff optioned. Do you think that that works, or is you that- can tell you can tell when people do it? Yeah, it's funny. I'll read some articles and we'll joke and be like, "Oh, this person wants to sell this." Uh, you can't you can't game it. I mean, the big thing is. It just better be about all the shit that's going on. I mean, when you read some article that's about, you know, a side drama in some other industry, and it's like, who cares? I mean, given everything that's going on. So when I say that micro macro, I really mean it. Like, if it's going to be some story about, I don't know, ornithology or, you know, the guy who invented Crocs, I'm, I'm just making these up. There better be something bigger running through it. Um, there will be someone out there who will make the docu-series or the documentary or the maybe even the small indie movie about the guy who invented Crocs. In fact, the more I'm talking about it, now I'm getting interested. <laughs> someone right now is like, who did invent Crocs? Who did invent Crocs? What do they symbolize? But yeah, it better it better have a little oomph one way or the other. I mean, we're doing the John Kerry, Bad Blood one. And clearly, you know, that's just about these billionaires and these unicorns. And then there's absolutely nothing there. And there's just a fascinating character at the center of it. So it's all about American capitalism. It's about American hype. It's about what do we value? There's just so many big things running through it. The Theranos story. Is there any part of you that was like, man, there's been like 17 podcasts, four documentaries, uh, like 16 different 2020 specials. Do people really want to see this story again? Initially, yes. Initially, we had a moment where the floodgates opened and everyone was knocking out documentaries and podcasts. But now I feel like a little bit of time has gone by. And now I feel like it could really be interesting. I feel like there's a thing that narrative scripted movies can do that you know other mediums can't do. And I, and I really think it's really all about character. And I think that's the thing you can do with a feature film is is this character, Elizabeth Holmes, who's sort of a daughter 
of modern capitalism, sort of a daughter of the tech boom. And she's kind of a tragic character. She sort of breaks my heart in a way, even though a lot of people got ripped off and some people were hurt. So I, I don't mean to excuse her, but she really was sort of raised and created by a lot of powerful billionaires and mentors and so I think it's character. I think that's what you can get to with the film. And so we're, we're definitely not done with it. Uh, Jen Lawrence and I talked about it a couple of weeks ago. Can I ask you one uh, totally uncouth and uncomfortable question? And then I really will let you go. Of course. Of course. All of this like um, crumbling America, this stuff that you so obviously care about are pouring yourself into. The, uh, the question I have uh, hearing you talk about it is like, how do you reconcile that passion with being what I assume is like a, a quite wealthy person? It's that's not an uncomfortable question at all. In fact, I think it's the question. Well, there's about three different answers to that. I'll try and go through them fast. Number one is I didn't go into this to be wealthy. You know, I went into this because I love to write and perform and direct and you know, when you start as an improviser in Chicago, it's the only lower paying job might be poet. So none of my intention was I'm going to make a lot of money, but I happened to get lucky because media exploded and turns out the amount of money you could get paid for doing this went up and up and up. The second thing is that we still have to live in this society. Like I remember hearing a story from Michael Moore that a town car would pick him up to take him to like a shoot or something. And someone would get a picture of him going, look at Michael Moore getting in a limousine. And it's like, well, first off, a town car costs like $80, settle down. He's also not paying for it. But people don't know what I give my money to and what I do with my money. The people don't know what I'm working towards. I, I don't want to say that because it seems pathetic. But let's just say as far as how I deal with being someone who has much more money than a public school teacher, which is objectively not right, is, is sort of that that is definitely a personal thing, but I'm aware of it and it's something I think about and it's something I deal with. The third thing I would say to that is that I think there's this people don't really understand just how explosive the wealth is at the very top in the 0.1%. I think people think that someone in Hollywood like myself is every bit as rich as Charles Koch or not Jeff Bezos, but I think they people just kind of think, oh yeah, billionaires, millionaires. But the level of wealth at the top 0.1% is so staggering. To even be in the 0.1%, you have to make $30 million a year. I mean, literally Charles Koch in like 20 minutes makes my entire net worth for everything I'm worth. And wages actually for the top 1% have been flat as well for the last four years. That's not a boo-hoo story. It's just a reminder that there's a big difference in this country between people that have too much money, millionaires, and people that are worth $100 billion. And I don't think mathematically we really understand that difference. So the last thing I'll say about that is everything I work towards is towards raising taxes and income equality. And it, I would love it one day if we got a real progressive president in who created a new top tax rate of 65%, 70%. And I would happily pay the money for it. And I would happily move to a smaller house. And I would happily 
I would love to see the middle class return to this country. But, you know, I, I other than that, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I mean, I could just give away every cent I have, but instead I try and use the, the chunk of money I have to try and do some good stuff. So uh, that's a very complicated answer to a very complicated question. But I think that about covers it. Well, I appreciate you uh, engaging with it. It's almost like that Coke wealth is like also too big for our brains to comprehend. I think you're right. I think that that's interesting. I think that kind of wealth is a bit of a hyper object. I mean, to really comprehend what it's like to be worth the Cokes, I think, are well, the one brother died, but I think Charles is worth 50 billion. $50 billion. I mean, the destruction that does to the country. I mean, it's like being in a lake and having a blue whale living in the lake. I mean, just think what that's going to do to the ecosystem of the lake. So I, you know, I'm hoping, and I think it's going to happen. Once again, I'll be optimistic here that people are going to really start to understand the scope of just how wildly destructive this runaway wealth inequality is in this country. What a giant oligarchy America is. And to some degree, the world, by the way, I don't mean to put all of this on America. I think you're going to see people really start to be aware of it. Part of that could involve like, you know, a mob coming for me, by the way, like the terror during the French Revolution. And if that ever happens, I got to admit, I'm going to at least for a couple seconds, I'm going to laugh because that'll <laughs> just be perfect. <laughs> Well, maybe at least with the like uh, unfathomable blue whale coke wealth, someone will figure out how to tell a uh, story about that so people can understand it. Isn't that the kind of the idea? That actually sounds like a children's book, doesn't it? Giant blue whale in the lake. You just inspired me to write a really crappy children's book that's thinly disguised socialist propaganda. Thank you for that, Max. Get on it, McKay. Uh, hey, thank you, man. Just a uh, Just a total pleasure to talk to you. I appreciate you doing this. Uh, so enjoyable. Thanks, Max. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor this week is Seth Kelly. Welcome, Seth. And our intern is Susan Peterson. Thanks to them. Thanks to our sponsors, MailChimp, as always. And thanks so much to Adam McKay for taking some time that was a real pleasure. His podcast is Death at the Wing. I'm told Succession will be back soon. But in the meantime, if you're looking for something else to listen to, hit pause right now or after I tell you this and go listen to Exit Scam. It's Aaron's new podcast. It's a totally wild, true crime, cryptocurrency, heist extravaganza. He's been working on it for two years. The show is fantastic. Go listen to it right now. Exit Scam from Aaron Lammer. Don't miss it. We'll see you next week. Support for Long Forum this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks that you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free. Normally, you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com longform or use code longform at checkout listening. 
your life just got a lot easier. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.